had the, a common enemy and we were all there for the same reason. It was great that the halls, or that hall in particular, was, was able to be there as a, as a home for that sort of stuff. If and when the coppers show up, that's how the trouble starts. It's a case of chicken and egg. I mean, everybody would get done for um, refusing to obey a police directive. Was that it? You know, the copper yeah. says to you, fuck off. And you go, you fuck off and you're gone. The nightlife of Brisbane in the 70s and 80s was home to some of the most iconic acts to emerge from the Brisbane music scene's history, especially in punk music. We put on a bunch of bands and uh, in the case of Baruna Hall, and some of them, you know, we start playing and 20 minutes later the cops would turn up and start smashing into people just because, you know, we had short hair and we looked a bit sort of, you know, off the wall or something. It's not like the Labor Party were in power or anything. So, you know, I think it's a. It, it was. It was probably an attractor. You know, the police would go, "What's on in that fucking Labor Hall this week? Let's go down there. You know, get a few cars." However, this punk scene was under siege in their local venues from police harassment, marking and damaging the fledgling subculture. You could be in trouble with the police any time. Just being. To be arrested by the police just attending a gig was a was a big possibility for anyone. All you had to do was look different, act different, be drunk, on drugs, on the street, in groups of two or more, and you could be pulled up by the police and they, they would pull up and from there trouble followed. The ambience, the memories, the music, or the nights you can't remember. When reflecting on nightlife experiences, it can be difficult to comprehend what it might be like if this culture that's so easily and freely enjoyed could be put under threat by powers far greater. We acknowledge the Yagara, Jagara and Turrbal people whose beautiful country this podcast was produced on. We pay respect to Elders past and present as the traditional custodians of this land whose shores, art and knowledge will always inform our creativity, storytelling and search for truth and unity while standing on the unceded lands of this country. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Dive into the history books, across the sticky floors, past the stacked glasses, gum and tangled cables, away from the history books Hear true stories from some of the most prolific venues in Australian history, told by the people that lived, breathed and built their scene. Building the scene. In our last episode, reflecting on the fascinating history surrounding Baruna or Caxton Street Hall, many of the reflections regarding the building's history stemmed from the impactful music scene cultivated in Brisbane during the 1970s and 80s. But one key fact that was shared by nearly all of the interviewees in this series was the police would not let the culture shock of this music subculture go unchecked. Punk was a political movement in Brisbane. That's why I became a drummer. I was drumming and acting at the same time, but I did an audition with the Pram Factory. I got in, but I just went, nah, I'm going to do this. It was a political movement. 
those young men in punk bands were, were putting themselves on the line all the time. They, they were taking the brunt of it. The Clinton Walker in that book, a cop is quoted as saying that there'll be no punk bands in this town, you know. It, 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 was, it was to shut us down because whenever we played, there, it was a, a group of very politically active people who were dem really demonstrating against an, an oppressive Bielke Peterson regime. That's what it was all about, and, and the police state. That's Lindy Morrison from the Go-Betweens, as well as a social activist and resident of Petrie Terrace during the time period when punk rock was making waves out from the Brisbane River. Living in a famous house on Wellington Street, Lindy was right in the heart of a changing social landscape in Petrie Terrace. Witnessing the quickly shifting culture surrounding Baruna Hall in a spectacular front row seat, Here's Sean O'Keefe from the Department of Industry, Science and Resources to explain more of this change. Petrie Terrace had a lot of boarding houses, even by the early 20th century. But, you know, it began to be increasingly used as share houses by students, actors, artists, musicians and activists. And again, that was something that was happening more broadly in Brisbane, in the suburbs, in, in, you know, in the 1970s, if not by the you know, 1960s. So... Uh, Lindy Morrison, who I understand you interviewed also for this, you know, who was already playing in Zero by the 1970s, you know, she, she lived in a very well-known share house in Wellington Street, which is still there, shared with the likes of the actor Geoffrey Rush. So so the demographic of the suburb was, was changing. So there were four of us living in really a three-storey uh, terrace that started at Wellington Street and dropped all the way down to the back lane where you'll see photographs of uh, Zero, the band I played in, uh, that I met shortly after, getting uh, busted by the cops for playing in the laneway at the back of. I contacted Lindy when we first did the event at Lefties for the launch of Heritage Week in 2016 and she was kind enough to, to send me some photos and some recollections and she sent one of Zero playing in a laneway which is not far from where they lived on Wellington Street up the, up towards the Normanby Five Ways. And, you know, I think it was a gig in the middle of the day and, you know, it was immediately shut, shut down by the police. Compared to other places in um, Australia, if not worldwide, because of the broader context that was happening, punks um, and, you know, people from the counterculture and subcultural groups fell into that, not surveillance, but uh, generally the police were aware of them and, you know, acted as they thought. The Bielke Peterson Ministry held power in the Government of Queensland from 1968 all the way to 1987. In this time, many controversial decisions and proposals demonstrated the divisiveness of Queensland. This included oil prospecting in the Great Barrier Reef, corrupt redevelopment schemes, hosting the South African rugby team in the height of apartheid, attempting to ban LGBTQIA teachers from teaching, and suppressing Indigenous claims to native land. There are simply too many divisive events to cover. Many students, activists and musicians felt especially betrayed in these actions due to rampant corruption in both politics and the Queensland police force. None of us were really um, terribly directly politicised, but all of us had that same, what's the word, malcontent. You know, you knew that you were in Queensland under Joe Bielke Peterson where, and, and that's at the time when the banned street marches were going on. And we, you know, we went to all of those and that was just sort of probably like a bit of sport 
1977, Bjelke Peterson proclaimed, the day of political street march is over. Don't bother applying to a march permit. You won't get one. That's government policy now. If protests went ahead, they were often met with the intervention and violence of the Queensland police force. With the vital form of demonstration through protest banned and dangerous, the subculture resorted to a new form against the regime through their music. Yeah, but there was a lot of bravado and bluster on our part and the part of all our friends. I mean, we, it was just part of the landscape that you dealt with. I, I never got beaten up by the cops. I was, I was a bit too quick for them. Uh, it was just, as I say, part of the landscape. But the, the pervasiveness of the Elke Peterson's government was everywhere. I mean, I did march with all the marches in the streets for, you know, against a lot of the things that they brought in. There was definitely a flavour, and, and I think it really engendered the, you know, the reason that you had this wellspring of music. And uh, whether you call it protest music or not, it was protest music as much in attitude as it was in content. I mean, what a rich vein of form, you know, from the Saints to ourselves, Go Between's Razor, you know, so many bands that, that, that were around out and about at the time, playing and doing little gigs and just, you know, making stuff. It was, um, yeah, very exciting. That was Mark Callahan from the Riptides and Gangajang, providing some extraordinary examples of bands that were performing in this era. Many of them took inspiration from punk culture with an ethos of DIY. The pursuit of passion and exhibiting art was fostered in places like Baruna Hall in Caxton Street. With a growing population of alternative youth and the police headquarters only 50 metres away, Baruna Hall became the perfect example of a clash between conservative and progressive culture taking place in Brisbane. Well, I was there one night when the cops came and smashed a lot of heads and it was all out on the street. It was just absolutely full on. So I think it wasn't an unusual occurrence, you know. It, you know, it happened not un, un, unusually, you know. They'd normally turn up, sort of stand around in riot gear or you might get, you know, three or four, half a dozen cops. They stand around and they might pick on someone or do something and then wait for a reaction. And then they'd call it in and all the paddy wagons would arrive, cops in riot gear. That's the one I remember at Baruna Hall. I'd love to know who was on that night. Well, I think it was really significant because of its, of its geography. It was right up the road from the police headquarters. It was like almost opposite uh, the police headquarters. This was very a very significant geographical place to play. We were standing up. We were ready, you know. Police intrusions at the hall was a common issue for musicians and punters alike. Criminal charges or violent altercations were a very possible reality. Negative assumptions were growing across the punk subculture, stemming from tabloid media in the UK and popularising all across the world. The UK punk scene had become a phenomenon, lighting a fire under many young fans of the Sex Pistols, the Damned and the Ramones. This new subculture sought to defy the status quo of authority. There would be few other places in the world which could be more inspired through dissatisfaction than the Brisbane punk scene. But I think if, um, if those crowds, us little crowds, were left to ourselves, there wouldn't have been any violence. 
what happened was that element that I'm talking about that came in that sort of got this idea of punk rock from the tabloids or wherever they got it and you know sort of thought well smashing up the toilets is like really cool well no it's not because you know you're fucking it up for everybody you know um, so there was an element like that who I, I, I felt completely alienated from and had nothing to do with thought it was stupid we were proud to be influenced by those sort of bands because for us that's what where punk came from and that's where we learned our influence is unashamedly that way and yet we used to cop a bit of flack for being more English influenced than say I don't know what else you're supposed to be I think they must have expected that we'd be another Saints but you needed to grab attention you needed to be different even then even though there wasn't that many bands not many people turning up to gigs when it first started you still we were wise enough to know that we needed to have an impact to get attention. That's Marty Burke from the celebrated Brisbane punk group Razor. Their music was inspired by the political discontent in UK punk. This inspiration would help them to create songs that would humorously express their frustration in the ruling powers around them. Perfect example is their track Task Force. Righto, you kids. I heard you swearing. I'm putting you on. This was the whole ridiculous thing about being in bands then and playing punk rock was they took it so very seriously when it was, I can tell you from, from the heart, it was tongue in cheek. Writing Task Force was more a dig at them. You know, you're not expected to, the, the song to become as people try to tell me, oh, that's lead injury. That's, that's, I have to accept, yes, people love the song and it's become something bigger. But at the time, it was pretty much tongue in cheek. Everything we wrote about. It's like across, it's that same influence of the, the pistols, say, in the damned. The, the, the pistols were very serious, it was very aggressive, very, very much obscene language oriented, and then you've got the damned who are fun oriented, never swearing on their records, but loud, raucous, fast. So Razor became this uh, uh, conglomerate of the, of the sounds that we absorbed. I honestly cannot remember the date or which gig it was, but they did turn up and they had tried to arrest a couple of people, but John had, and I've got a feeling they actually did arrest somebody, and they'd taken him away and then John intervened and said, look, you know, I've got a license, this gig has been okayed with the hall, blah, 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 it's all kosher. They walked in and kind of basically said, we could fucking hear it from up at the, up at the barracks. He said, we've just basically walked down here. I remember thinking, wow, it didn't work after all. They, they heard everything. They, they came down to say, what the, what's the raucous noise? And then when they walked in, saw it was a kind of a uni, come a punk, come organised sort of thing. They, um, they left it be, at, uh, you know, talking to Johnny, kind of got them to, to take off. But we, the gig imploded, as they always did uh, after the police had been. The gig would just stop. You couldn't start up again. It was like, we're going to take your gear, we're going to... You know, you're all going to be arrested kind of thing, so you didn't want that to happen. 
Marty's recounting of Rezar's show at Baruna Hall demonstrates how easily police intimidation could shut down a performance. Tension between punters and the police could escalate from a standoff to violence and arrests. A well-known example of this escalation happened at Baruna Hall. Local band The Sharks played a headlining show at the hall in November 1979, a show that would end violently with a dozen arrests. That particular event, from what I understand, you know, immediately after this gig, which was a benefit gig, had started, a whole bunch of police cars rocked up and they started arresting people on the pretense of being drunk and disorderly. And then, you know, uh, a melee ensued, violence broke out between people that were, that were at the uh, hall and police, and then eventually 12 people were taken to the watch house and, and, and arrested. So, you know, it's a very, very heavy-handed response to, to um, a musical performance. I played at a couple of things at, at Baruna Hall and also further up, like I said, up the hill, you know, the, the, the rock against poofter bashing thing. I know that there were, that I was present at those things where lots of cops came, people got arrested, you know, what they what the Courier Mail would have called a riot, you know, occurred or whatever, which is really just people running away from the, the violent cops. Yeah. I never was arrested or, you know, I don't remember anything I just, I just feel that that sort of thing was really common, you know, it was really common. I feel like every time we played, the cops would turn up, which was, I think, probably fairly accurate. Uh, you know, until Triple Z got onto it and got a couple of venues. From what I understand, once bands started playing at the hall, they immediately attracted the attention of the police. The Caxton Legal Service had already been established there. It wasn't necessarily a, a site of radicalism like, um, you know, FOCO, for example, at the Trades Hall. But, you know, it certainly would have been on their radar, not at least because Barracks is 50 metres up the road, so wouldn't have escaped their attention. Punks would have, you know, in the context of a very staid and conservative Brisbane, would have automatically attracted interest. You would have heard, yeah, from interviews that you've done and numerous other interviews, the likes of um, Clinton Walker, for example, that police harassment was a thing. And if you looked a little bit more, a little bit unusual, it had short, spiky hair, then, you know, you attracted attention. So inevitably, when, when bands gathered and groups of people went to enjoy music, they attracted the overt attention of the police. Even through this threat, the Brisbane music community felt driven to contribute to the culture and felt unified in a goal of expression despite everything. Here's Darren Atkinson from the 80s Brisbane band Ups and Downs, describing some of their experiences from Baruna Hall. It was a very conservative town in many ways. Uh, you had some forces like Triple Z trying to fight the good fight against the conservative government, but it did allow that isolation and that kind of heavy conservatism drove some innovation, I think, in Brisbane uh, at that time in the sort of music and theatre that was going around that you didn't see in the southern states when you went down there. I remember going there a couple of times, but the, the one that I do remember more fondly of, and I actually dug up an old flyer, old handbill, because we used to do up all of our own artwork at the time, and you might be able to see down the bottom Caxton Street Hall. But this was a, uh, an anti-Joe, uh, anti-Joe Bielke Peterson dance with a couple of other local bands, Zoogaloo's and Downtown Five. And, and uh, I do remember that night, strangely the, the police didn't come, but that was the one that we got hassled after um, the gig. I don't know, they, they didn't break into that one, 
But I remember it being really well attended and look, it's called the Make Your Stance at the Anti-Joe Dance, but it wasn't, it wasn't a rally. It was just the sort of thing that bands did in those days was let's play a gig, but let's make it mean something and let's all rally behind something that we actually believe in. It was kind of low key as well. That was actually more the norm than anything that was kind of outstanding. So I remember the hall, it's terrible for sound, um, you know, just a big wooden hall as they were in the days and just a vocal PA and, and it was pretty, um, pretty shocking, but it was a lot of fun. Although the hall hosted many bands who would define their respective eras in music, the site also became home to a revolutionary legal service. This service would prove to be instrumental to many protesters, punks, musicians, and all walks of life across Brisbane by introducing a free legal service. First founded in 1976, the Baruna Legal Service began with two young legal activists, Noel Nunnan and Lorenzo Bocabella. Inspired by a similar service in Melbourne, the duo took action and began a free legal service out of Varuna Hall with the support of many legal volunteers. You know, I'm not intimately familiar with the work of Caxton Legal Centre, but yeah, I'm certainly aware that it was a pioneering legal service in Queensland, which evolved into the Caxton Street Legal Centre and, you know, at the time was really without parallel. You know, as well as offering a free legal service, a key part of its focus was education about the legal system and people's rights and for people that really didn't have access or, or knowledge or could afford legal representation or advice. And again, you know, this is in the context of the conservative and repressive BLPP government. Yeah, I think it was the first of its kind as well. And I think that everybody was using that during the demonstrations to uh, get legal advice. Uh, if they required it, uh, if they'd been arrested. I'm pretty sure that that was operating to be effective for demonstrators, um, seek bail for them and then uh, appearing uh, for them before the magistrate's court when the magistrate would throw them off. Yeah, I think the Caxton, I think you might call that as, uh, as being one of the first. Now, by the late 1970s, there were 50 lawyers volunteering at services. Eventually it received sufficient funding, including some government funding, to retain a full-time solicitor. And they began appearing in court and also publishing legal resource books. And they also used the hall for social fundraising events as well. So again, that, that use continued, um, but that was really to, so that they could you know, continue their work. And you know, no notable people who volunteered their services you know, include Di Fingleton, who was Queensland's first ever female chief magistrate, uh, and Premiers Wayne Goss and, and Peter Beattie, and a lot of other Labor politicians who uh, came to power in the early 1990s. So, yeah, the legal service moved out of the hall in 1988, but you know, it continued to be an important and influential part of Queensland's legal world. For example, they, they led the state's first stolen wages case. Just another really interesting aspect of, of, of the history um, of the hall, the influence of, of its use and the people associated with those uses. The legal service produced leaflets, placed guides in university magazines and assisted the student activist population in their endeavours. By the early 1980s, the service was providing legal advice to 2,500 clients a year, half of whom would have otherwise been unable to pay for legal services themselves. Caxton Legal is still operating today and has helped to define the careers of many whilst also performing an instrumental service to those who would otherwise be left unaided.
It's been a busy day at the Fitzgerald inquiry. It seems the intense scrutiny of cross-examination finally broke former Cabinet Minister Don Lane. Mr Lane has cried in the witness stand and blown the lid on spending habits of Cabinet Ministers such as Jeff Muntz, Martin Tenney and Bill Gunn. In the late 1980s, the Fitzgerald inquiry brought down the Bielke-Peterson government. Investigations into Queensland police corruption led to Bielke-Peterson resigning. Three former ministers jailed, as well as police commissioner Terry Lewis. Some semblance of justice was corrected in Queensland at this time, but the years of harassment under a police state had left much of the music scene that defined the decades prior damaged. They were really bad. They used to get away with a lot of bad stuff and far more serious than punk rock gigs, of course, but this was something that I could not understand for the life of me, why they were, why they take it so bloody seriously. And we soon learned that they were building up a list of people by having them arrested, uh, fingerprinted and so forth. Yeah, ruined some people's lives. Some people went on to, to do um, worse things themselves and get in more trouble. Other people never wanted to attend a gig again or were always scared to be walking the streets without some company. In fact, that wasn't always a guarantee of safety with the police or, or coming into contact with them because they would quite often stop people on the street. They might be driving down the street in, a, in the car in a, in a police uh, vehicle and they'd pull you up and be questions. You'd be two or more people, young people together. You might be dressed slightly different. Your hair might be coloured. It might not be. It might be spiky. Whatever. If you look different, that's where the problems start for them and they would start with that. The punk music scene had resisted for years, but almost as soon as it had arrived, the subculture had developed and moved on to a new wave of music and audiences. These fans can still now appreciate the sacrifices and defiance showed by the punk subculture who made their presence known in a dominating and oppressive environment. They were sort of violent within themselves, you know? Um, it was part of their shtick, chaos, I mean, I, you know, and, and it wasn't sort of contrived, like, oh, we'll be like the Sex Pistols and we'll be, you know, chaotic, you know, it's all about chaos. You know, my theory is it's like the universe, so it passes through the eye of the needle and then it opens to expand out again, you know, and I think after punk, post-punk, 1978, you know, it, it was interesting to me to see the way you could open it out again, keep it fresh, do it yourself keep it straightforward but not stick to a formula. Punk had arrived and post-punk came very quickly after and post-punk was such a broad church you know there were anything kind of went and there was a lot of looking back to the 50s and, and looking forward you know and uh, you know to to those bands that were really kind of breaking ground maybe like Devo or you know people who were making sounds that were really uncommon um, and people were also playing with ideas a lot in music, I think. Uh, it wasn't just all about love songs. And, you know, all of this is, it's, it's a post-70s kind of wave. It's, you know, punk isn't like, it's not like everything before punk was shit. It's like punk is just sort of one iteration of a, of a whole bunch of stuff that happened in that sort of post-late 60s into the 70s and then into the 80s. So I think that there was a lot of innovation in music making, but I think that was just, the time. I think a lot of that is about the time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building the Scene. 
This podcast was produced by Humid Snake Productions and 4ZZZ Radio in Brisbane. Executive producer was Nick Huntington with producers Russell Thompson and Lucy McAfee. Editing by Nick Huntington, Vladimir Rudikov and Vin Sutherland. Research and production assistant provided by Levi Rial and Neil McLeod. We would love to stay in touch and hear from you. Drop us a line on Instagram and Facebook at Building the Scene. If you want to support the show, give us a rating on your podcast app, spread the word to your mates in person and online, or just keep on listening. Special thanks to the Australian Cultural Library, State Library of Queensland, and the many voices featured throughout this episode. This podcast would not be possible without the help of the Brisbane City Council Creative Spark Program. We're eternally grateful for the support. Catch ya! Building the scene.